Well, good morning. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we just give praise to you. I am delighted to be here among the saints on this beautiful morning. Lord, I pray that you would surround us today with your love, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you. Lord, please uh, help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name. Well, about a year ago at Christmas, our kids, our older kids got together, and they gave Christy and I one of these flat TVs, uh, wanted to bring us into this particular century. And uh, I actually got it on the wall in our bedroom, uh, but I never got the cable hooked up to it. So about the only stations we can really get are public broadcasting, wouldn't you know? Uh, and it so happened recently, I was uh, I caught in the middle of an attempt to explain in one of these science programs to to regular folks like me the concept of quantum mechanics. Okay, and uh, to the best of my ability, I what I understood was they they think they figured out about three-quarters of how all things in the universe work together. But there's this new concept called string theory, like a string, uh, which they think may explain the one thing they haven't figured out so far is how gravity relates to the electromagnetic forces and the atomic world, you know, the atom with the neutrons and the protons and all that. Uh, and so, uh, in that process, in trying to explain this, uh, apparently these string things, which are infinitely smaller than atoms, work to hold all things material in the universe together. The only problem with this that is that the only way it can be demonstrated is mathematically on a blackboard because they're way too small to be seen and you know you can't do any experiments to show that they actually exist but in this presentation they referred to the big bang another so-called theory about the origin of the universe and uh... of course there are no witnesses to the beginning of the universe so you can't and you can't re it, you can't replicate it to prove how it actually happened. Uh, but somehow, the Big Bang, while just a concept or a theory, can be logically deduced. Um, you see, Albert Einstein, who's kind of the quintessential genius of the 20th century, uh, he believed initially that the universe was eternal. Okay? It had always been here. So therefore, he had no need for a creator. However, the astronomer Sir Edwin Hubble, in his observations, made a stark finding. He looked out and he discovered that the stars were moving away from each other. In other words, they are expanding as we speak. Presumably have always expanded. So if you run that tape backwards and you bring all the stars to contract, it would eventually come down to a single point, meaning 
there had to be a beginning. Well, Hubble invited Einstein to his observatory, and Einstein, after looking at what Hubble had discovered, admitted that he had been wrong, and that, in fact, the universe had to have had a beginning. Now, in the scientific world, this was huge, because all those naturalistic scientists who had used Einstein's eternal universe as cover now had to wrestle with, once, once again, those age-old questions. From where or did we come, and why are we here? Of course, the Big Bang does not explain how or why the universe began. It is a theory of first affect, not a theory of first cause. On the other hand, some Christians react to the word Big Bang uh, because they equate it with godless evolution. You see, naturalistic scientists now assume the Big Bang was the way that it happened, and frankly, it's become kind of a cultural term. Isn't there a TV show by that name? You know, So it's kind of associated with that side of the debate. However, other Christians, including scientists and scholars, have suggested that really, when you think about it, the Big Bang is not inconsistent with the creation account. Personally, all of this made me think that the more science discovers and contemplates about the nature of the universe, the more the biblical account is verified. The more complex we determine our existence in the universe to be, the more the whole thing cries out for a creator. The alternative is everything coming from an unguided, purposeless nothing. I mean, do you get my drift? Genesis 1.3 says, Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And until God spoke, the universe was in total darkness, was formless and void, without life and without purpose. For it to fulfill God's purpose, the universe required light. Of course, the source of light is God, specifically the Word of God. God spoke and light energy and all the electromagnetic forces and energy connected with it were put into effect. The creation of light brought about the energizing of the physical cosmos, the order. As for this first effect, what do you think God's initial creative act would have looked like? Think about it, honestly. This first God cause... God creating or speaking the universe into existence by the creation of light ex nihilo from nothing. Suddenly, trillions of light-bearing material bodies that we call stars burst into existence and are cast into what had been a vast, dark nothing. 
Can you think, honestly, of a more magnificent explosion? In addition, a biblical Big Bang concept happens to answer quite adequately those pesky questions about how we on earth can now see the light from stars that are millions or billions of light years away. The biblical creation account in no way conflicts with what we now can observe in, uh, through science because the Big Bang requires a fuse lighter, a creator. The scriptures teach us that God is light, that he dwells in light unapproachable, that Christ is the light of the world, that God covers himself with light as a garment. The psalmist declared that the Lord is our light and a light to our path. Therefore, we're told to walk in the light of the Lord and as children of light. All this serves to remind us that God is the source of light, physical as well as spiritual. First, he's the creator of and author of the eye by which light is utilized for vision. Second, he's the creator of the immaterial and the spiritual makeup of man by which, like the eye itself, man can see. In other words, have spiritual sight, discernment. We can know God and walk wisely. And finally, he's the author of the word of God, which is God's light to our path. In Genesis 2-7, we're told that God created Adam, and he, quote, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And this phrase is the Hebrew neshema, which is literally the spirit of life. It's a synonym for the Hebrew word ruach, spirit. In Proverbs 20, verse 27, it says, The spirit of man is a lamp of the Lord searching all the innermost parts of his being. Spirit, again, here is Neshema, which is seen as man's inner spiritual instrument of light or vision, the product of the creative activity of God. However, because of the fall and man's resultant spiritual death, and because of the blinding activity of Satan, this light has been extinguished from the standpoint of understanding spiritual matters. And so man needs regeneration and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in order to see and understand spiritual truth. All life, therefore, comes from God. And if man is to find light in the figurative sense, he must come to God as the source of light. But the tragedy and the judgment of God on man is that the light, Jesus Christ, has come into the world, and man consistently loves darkness rather than the light. Why? Because his deeds, in general, are evil, and he doesn't want to be exposed to the light or to change. Think about the traditional necessities of life, okay? You can name them. Water, food, clothing, and shelter, right? Now, in fact, light must be added to that list as light was and is essential for all organic life to exist. 
as God had to create light before he could create vegetation, so spiritual light is essential for spiritual life as well. With that rather long preface, we come to our passage for today. Uh, we move now to the last section of what has traditionally been viewed as, the, uh, as part of the Beatitudes, and to what I've entitled, Exposing the Light of the World. And next month, Lord willing, we'll go on to continue with what I've entitled, Exposing the Light to the World, uh, which will be more practical application and perhaps some tough questions. But for today, after explaining the character of one sold out to God in the Beatitudes, and that a true believer is the salt of the earth. Jesus states in Matthew 5, starting in verse 14, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. After using the figure of salt to express the function of the subjects of his kingdom in the world, the Lord said to his disciples, You, you are the light of the world. What was he saying? How can we be the light of the world? Well, to better grasp this truth or to maybe allow it to grasp us, we're going to take a, a brief look at the use of light in Scripture for background and insight. As salt is for corruption, so light is to darkness. And this light-darkness analogy is replete through Scripture. I see it everywhere. In this passage that we just read, Christ teaches us that those who believe in him are the light of the world, but we've got to remember that we can function as such only because of our essential relationship to him. He alone is a true light of the world since he is God, the source of light, the word, the logos, the revelation of God. But with that picture, he seeks to get us to face our purpose and function as his people to let our light shine. But we can do this only to the degree that we receive light from Jesus Christ, who is to us what the sun is to the moon or what a match is to an oil-soaked wick in a lamp. Our true responsibility is to reveal the Lord Jesus to give off the light of his glorious life. Grammatically here, Jesus starts this with the Greek emphatic pronoun, you, you are the light of the world. And like the salt passage, this stresses you and you alone, true believers. This means that if man is ever to find solutions to his problems in any area of life, spiritually or morally speaking, it must come through the ministry of the body of Christ as it reveals the Lord Jesus to a world that lies in darkness. The church alone has the answers of life because it alone knows the Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. You know... It's interesting how the world is always talking about its enlightenment or its awakening. It has these great hopes in its programs of reform and change. But really, the only enlightenment it can ever really find must come 
from this, and, and bring aid to, to the society in which we live is through those who know Christ and who know their Bible. Francis Schaeffer, in a series he, he produced called How Should We Then Live, uh, illustrated this. There was this <clears throat> period of the Renaissance in the south of Europe uh, called the so-called the Enlightenment. Uh, but it was based on humanism, and it frankly led to darkness and distortions. For example, the French Revolution was based on humanism, and it basically failed. It was hideously cruel and bloody, and it really failed to lead to true freedom. But in the north of Europe, there was this thing called the Reformation, based on the light of the word, which had a completely different result. When men or a society reject God's light and seek to walk by their own puny match lights, as Isaiah 50 warns, they must eventually lie in torment uh, of their own making as we see so clearly today in society. Western culture has largely abandoned our Christian heritage and the light of the Lord and the moral, political, and social breakdown we see in, in our society is the result. The phrase in our passage, of the world, again serves here to emphasize the spiritual condition of the world. It lies in a state of spiritual darkness. No matter how hard we try, if we act autonomous, autonomously from ourselves, only darkness results. Now, everybody can see the need and the attraction of light. Even Satan masquerades as an angel of light, uh, as a model for deception. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul refers to false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, verse 14, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So, he, Satan, and his false prophets of religion and humanism and mysticism, uh, they lead away, lead men away from God into darkness. Only God, as he did in creation, can break through the spiritual chaos and darkness of the world and bring cosmos, the word for order, light, and life. So, there's a world out there lying in darkness, and it will only experience genuine light to the degree that the church, the body of Christ, we here reveal Christ and the truth of his word. This is the primary purpose and function of light, though it may also be for heat and warmth. The world is dark, in chaos, in death, and cold without the Savior. Now, in the passage in Matthew 5, Jesus gives us some illustrations. To emphasize our function and purpose, he uses two figures from life, a city on a hill and a lamp under a basket. And by these figures, he demonstrates just how ridiculous it is for the subjects of his kingdom, a kingdom of light, to fail to function as we're designed. 
But that's precisely the problem. The church and believers are like this. Our record for letting our light shine is, well, not so good. First of all, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. As you might imagine, this is not rocket science, a hill elevates anything placed on it, like a city, to, view, to be viewed by everyone around it. It makes it stand out, clearly visible, which of course is the function of light. Webster defines light as something which enables you to see, or that which makes vision possible. In other words, light and sight go together. So our purpose is to give sight to a world in darkness. Now, I've never been there, but I understand that if you tour in the Holy Land, you will see that many of the villages there were built on the tops of hills. And so, in the darkness of night, the light from the houses on the hill could not be hidden. So from a great distance, one knew and could navigate from one village to the next simply by seeing the light on the next hill. Uh, and it became a beacon for travelers uh, and in that day. When we live truly a Christ-like life, or when we abide in him who is the light, we take on the character of Christ, as we've studied in the Beatitudes. It elevates us and makes us distinct in the sense of being more visible. It draws in the lost because godly character stands out in a world of darkness. It's something you can't hide. It becomes obvious to all those around you. You can't hide a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Of course, this is the issue. Are we really walking, abiding with Christ, or is our relationship with him simply superficial? Verse 15 uses the figure of the typical use of the lamp. And this presses the issue even more and shows how ridiculous it is for a believer in Jesus Christ to fail in his purpose. Why does anyone light a lamp? Obviously, it's so it may give off light in a room. You don't light a lamp, which is designed to give light to the inhabitants of a house in darkness, and then put it under a basket. That would make the lamp worthless. Yet, that is exactly what a believer can do with his or her life. God has made us to be lamps in Jesus Christ, and he's left us here in the world that we might give off light to the glory of Christ. But by the bushel baskets of carnality and worldliness and apathy and materialism and the fear of not conforming to the world and other false sources of security by which we choose to live life, we cover up the lights and fail in our purpose. If we do that, we are literally good for nothing. Like salt that's lost its savior, a lamp under a bushel, we are wasting our very purpose for living as children of God. This second illustration of the lamp is really specific and when used in conjunction with the rest of Scripture provides some very instructive truths that we can live by or apply. Now, 
A lamp in biblical times was kind of a round, shallow, open-faced bowl to hold the oil that was pinched at the rim, which would hold a, a wick made out of twisted flax. Uh, and it, it, the shape of it eventually evolved, but, but, but you've probably seen pictures of these. Uh, now, what is, what's the meaning of this? What's the meaning of this figure? Uh, in addition to just the core fact that we are to bear light, the lamp illustrates how believers can become and function as a light of the world. When we compare this figure to the rest of Scripture, we find several applications. Our bodies are likened by Paul to an earthen vessel, a lamp, if you will, made of earth or clay. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Secondly, the oil in the lamp. That's a picture, a common picture that's used in Scripture to portray the Holy Spirit who anoints, whom the Father has poured out into our lives that we might give light. And there's a principle here that without the Holy Spirit and His control, there can be no light. We are literally a lamp under a basket. The wick would be compared to the inner man, the soul and the spirit, saturated with oil, in other words, under the control of the Holy Spirit. It's important to remember that a wick must be trimmed or cut back or it will smoke and the, the light will become more, more and more dim and finally it'll go out. A couple of principles here. One, this portrays the need of believers to trim from his or her life those things which hinder our walk with the Lord. We've got to confess sin and root problems and put to death those old patterns of sin by reckoning and relying upon the Holy Spirit himself as it tells us in Romans 8. Second principle is when we neglect or refuse to trim our wicks, so to speak, and our light dims, the Father, like the loving lamplighter, must come along and trim and relight the wick through divine discipline, testing, and trials to get us to function so uh, as those sitting in the darkness they can see and come to know Jesus Christ. There's a similar analogy in John 15 where it says that uh, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and God the Father is the heavenly vine dresser. And God the Father comes along and he removes the unproductive and diseased branches by pruning now, if you can see, this is a little visual aid I just happen to have with me. I've told this story before, but you can see my middle finger is truncated. It's shorter. This is a direct result of God doing just a little bit of pruning in my life. When I thought the Christmas spirit was about giving material things to others, rather than giving my time and my attention to my children, 
It's a lesson I've never forgotten. God is faithful. The Lord tells us, God tells us in Hebrews 12, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. The flame which gives off the light to a room undoubtedly is the fruit of the Spirit, the glory and the character of Christ and of the gospel of the word. It's not only Christ's life and character revealed in us, but also his message spoken by us. It means both life and lip, walk and talk, man and message. In ourselves, we are simply earthen vessels, just old clay pots. But we are so designed by God and created through spiritual regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we can give off the life of Christ. There's another very interesting analogy in Proverbs 6. And he uses this lamp concept to explain how families can best function. And there it says, starting in verse 20, My son, observe the commandment of your father, and do not forsake, the King James uses the word law, the New American Standard uses the word teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk to you. For the commandment is a lamp. And the law is a light. And reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Now, I would not say that this passage in the Proverbs tells us exactly or gives us rigid rules about how a family is to function. But I think it does suggest some things. I think it suggests that fathers are to take responsibility for the direction of their families. And mothers are to see that that direction is carried out as long as it's consistent with God's. This passage helps us to see that the father is the head of the home and the wife is the heart of the home and that they are both to be interdependent. They should work in harmony. You cannot have a light without a lamp. And what good is a lamp if it doesn't give off light? And for single parents, they must simply perform both roles. Another interesting thing in Scripture that we see about visible light is that it's made up of three primary colors, red, blue, and green, if I'm not mistaken. From these three we get all the other colors through different combinations, but in just the perfect combination, we get pure light. And pure light is a picture of the Trinity. Three, each different with distinct roles in one, just like the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another thing that I was not aware of, but in studying this, Science tells us that light is composed of three separate and distinct rays or groups of wavelengths. 
not one of which without the other would be light. Each ray has its own separate function. The first originates, the second formulates, illuminates, and manifests, and the third consummates. Let me explain. The first ray, called actinic light, often called invisible light, is neither seen nor felt. That kind of sounds like the Father. The second light, luminiferous light, is both seen and felt. And that would seem to be a picture of the sun. The third, calorific light, is not seen, but it is felt as heat. That might picture the Holy Spirit. So light really is a great, it's the best illustration of the Trinity or the triunity of God. Throughout the word, light is used to portray the character of God as good and holy and totally set apart from sin. But it also portrays him as life-creating, life-giving, and life-transforming. Well, let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 1 teaches us that in the beginning, the, word was formless, the world was formless and void. Uh, that it was also darkness over the face of the deep. Then God simply spoke and light was created. This entire narrative of creation traces how God transformed the chaos into cosmos, order, turned darkness into light, and altered that which was unprofitable and without life into that which is good, profitable, and full of life. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars to give light to the world. But the narrative of Genesis 1 not only gives us the history of creation and the origin of light and life, but it, it is designed to illustrate the spiritual realities throughout the history of man and his redemption. So the universe, and particularly the creation narrative, is designed not only to reveal God and the, and the, the glory and majesty of God, but also to reveal his redemptive purpose and plan to bring light, life, and meaning out of what is darkness, waste, and without purpose. So one of the greatest declarations of the Bible, frankly, is that God is light. He is the one who, as light himself, created it and who dispels the darkness. And Jesus Christ, his Son, in his incarnation is called the light of the world because he came to reveal God and to give man life and life more abundantly. <clears throat> he is called the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness in Malachi 4 as the only one who, through both of his advents, will bring righteousness and peace to a world that lies in the chaotic darkness of Satan's domain. Perhaps the clearest picture of this is found in John chapter 1. Key passage where it says, and you, you need to teach this to your children because it is key. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning... He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, the Word. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John the Baptist. 
John came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through Jesus. He was not the light, John, but John came to testify about the light. And there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Finally, the story of man's redemption ends with anticipation of a new day, a time when all darkness will be removed, both physical and spiritual. There will be no longer any need for the sun over our heads. In Revelation 22, it says, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. But in the meantime, during this time of darkness, the Lord has given us, his church, a key role. Jesus told his disciples, you are the light of the world. As believers who possess the Savior and the indwelling Spirit, we are now called upon to be the light of the world like the moon which reflects the light of the sun. We are to reflect the light of Jesus Christ. It was a dark and stormy night on Lake Erie in 1869. As the waves rolled like mountains, the boat rocked and plunged near Lorraine Harbor just off of the port of Cleveland. The captain shouted to his pilot, Are you sure this is Cleveland? And the pilot responded, Yes, sir, there's the lighthouse. And the captain asked, But where are the lower lights? The pilot said, They're not on, sir but we've got to try to make it into the channel or we will perish. Now the lower lights were the lamps that were supposed to be lit along the shoreline of the channel that led into the safe harbor for ships at sea at night. And on this particular night, they weren't lit. And so this particular ship missed the channel crashed on the rocks, and many lives were lost, leaving only a few, including the captain, surviving to tell the story. The story behind this is that that particular night, or in the afternoon, the lighthouse keeper, who had been serving that so for many years, decided, you know, through all my time here, not one ship has sought safe harbor in through this channel into this harbor that these lower lights would, would guide them into. So I'm not going to waste my time. And he went to bed. He awoke in the morning to find his conscience burdened for the rest of his life because of his failure to act. When he read about this incident in the newspaper, a young songwriter by the name of Philip Bliss was struck how one man's negligence could be so costly. But then just a little while later, 
he attended a crusade and he heard Dwight L. Moody use this very incident as an example. And hearing that hit bliss like a ton of bricks. He thought to himself, Oh God, I am just as guilty as that lighthouse keeper. He said, as a Christian, you are to be one of the lower lights shining brightly so that some poor soul tossed about on the sea of life may find safety and everlasting light in the haven that God has prepared. Bliss could not rid his thoughts of this problem. A week after Moody's sermon, Bliss wrote a song. Now listen to the words and try to apply it to us. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Dark the night of sin has settled, loud the angry billows roar, eager eyes are watching longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother, some poor sailor tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the wave. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman you may rescue, you may save. God chose a bright light, a star, to guide the wise men, the magi, to the Christ child. He put the light of the heavenly host in the skies to draw the common shepherds to the baby Jesus. He chose a small lamp in a dingy, dirty, dark stable to illuminate the face of God on earth, who was himself the light of the world and the light of men, and who somehow passed that light onto us for a reason to be the lower lights. Each of us, each believer here today is a light to one degree or another. The question is, how brightly are we shining and what are we illuminating? Now, if you're kind of new to all this, if all this talk about light doesn't really make a lot of sense and you're interested I just urge you, please, please come out of the darkness. Come to the light. If you're not sure about where you're going when you leave this world, you know, ask any of the leaders here, or if you don't know any, just ask one of the lights sitting next to you for directions. Please, please, the light is much, much better than the darkness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
we are astounded by your awesome power. And you have the power to give and the power to take away. And what we deserve is for you to take all because we all deserve eternal damnation because we're all sinners. But yet, you chose to give. You gave your only son to die for those sins that each of us might spend eternity with you if we'll only accept that free gift of salvation through the death of Christ on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Christ here personally right now to come to his light. I pray for the believers here that each of us, Lord, would recognize how vital it is to your kingdom that we be lights every single day of our lives and that we reflect the glory of Jesus Christ in and through what we do as well as what we say. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to be here and now to commune with you over the Lord's table. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.